Today's episode of the Crawford Talks is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from GoToMeeting all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated, and productive at home, we're here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Add to your flash briefing on Alexa or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. Welcome in. It is the Crawford Talks. Ordinarily, as we're heading into late April, we'd be discussing about three plus weeks worth of games. Obviously, that's not the case in the times that we live in. I'm Mike Meltzer. He is Jay Kaplan. We're going to do something a little bit different today. We're going to go over the Astros' 10 best draft picks of the 21st century. Before we dive in, Jake, how are you doing, man? I'm doing okay. Um, yeah, you're right. Uh, with no games to talk about, now we talk about documentaries. So interesting, interesting. We do, yes, to, <laughs> to see post game shows and post game analysis, post show analysis for uh, documentaries. I don't think uh, we've ever seen that before. I feel like we're going to look back at this time in just complete fascination. Whatever, whatever the uh, I don't know if there's like an end, more of like a, a gradual relaxation over the next year or whatever it's going to be. But we're going to look back on this time just in fascination that that we were watching like basically post documentary sports centers of people breaking down a documentary as if it was a live game that just finished moments earlier. Yeah, and honestly, I loved all of the post <laughs> analysis of it. And I've been like reading about the Jordan documentary constantly. It's, it's like been the, like, I don't know. It, it brightened my mood last night on Sunday night for sure. Um, you know, given everything that's going on. So uh, definitely not against all of this, this content, um, you know, and all the analysis of this, this documentary, but it's just, it's just interesting. Like you said, uh, fascinating is a good word that, that, um, you know, we've, we're at this point where we're we're dissecting sports documentaries. Yes. My friend Jason Benetti is the uh, TV voice of the White Sox, and he tweeted something uh, on Sunday night to the effect of like, you know, we're alone watching The Last Dance on ESPN, but we are we are basically, it, it's a communal thing because almost every sports fan you know, assuming they have time, which they probably do right now, is watching it. And that's what sports is kind of about, which is, you know, one of the reasons why, regardless of whether there was a Republican or Democrat in office right now as president, like I actually do think it's important at some point to get sports back, even though it's 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 far from like the primary focus here. I think people will be happier over the course of this week when they go through the NFL draft because, and we obviously have a lot of football fans listening to this as well, because it's going to give people a sense of normalcy and something completely different uh, from this pandemic. So I do think over time, like getting sports back after something big nationally, whether it's a tragedy or something bizarre like this, I think does give people a true like sense of normalcy, even if it's like, hey, they can escape their circumstances for an hour or two or three here or there. Yeah, I mean, you could tell how much people miss sports by how much they were tweeting about this documentary. Like, I, I think I logged on to Twitter after the second episode and it was like trend trending on Twitter was like, the Last Dance, Jordan, Jackson, Kraus, Pippen, like that was like every trending topic was, <laughs> yes. was, was someone uh, from the 97-98 Bulls. So, um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's it just speaks to the you know the the craving for sports right now, uh, and it was interesting and and like you said, a communal viewing experience was kind of neat. And like you have NBA players tweeting about the documentary, and you know probably athletes from every sport. Um, so it's it's the first time in a while I feel like we've all been watching the same thing. Yes, uh, and that was that was a neat experience. So let's dive in here. Jake has a story about on the athletic make sure you check it out and jake went through and ranked the astros 10 best draft choices of the 21st century and jake my overwhelming observation we'll go in reverse order here to build up some suspense here from like 10 to 1 but my overall surprise was you know this is an organization that's obviously had you know a pretty decent amount of success in the last 20 years granted you know a big down period as well but this is a franchise that has in the last 20 years, won a World Series, been to two others, obviously one in the American League where they lost and one in the National League they lost. They've been to the playoffs a little bit less than maybe a handful of times as well. And yet, in 20 years, in like a long time span, it is hard to find 10 good draft selections for this franchise. That, that was my overwhelming takeaway going through the research on this. Yeah, I was surprised at how hard it was to get to 10. Um, I mean, if you look at it, the list is really seven or maybe eight deep. And then the the, the three at the bottom were more like projecting um, future value and also like what a trade is going to look like in the future, like a, a past trade. Yep. Um, and I should note at the top, I didn't, it isn't, this isn't the best players drafted by the Astros. Uh, it's the best Astros draft picks. So, like, what value did they get out of the pick? So, like, J.D. Martinez is one of the best players drafted by the Astros, but the Astros got nothing out of him, so he doesn't qualify. Yes. Um, he's probably the prime example of that. Uh, Ramon Laureano, uh, a lesser example of that. So, the best Astros draft picks, and, yeah, it was it was surprising Um how how you know much of a thought exercise nine and ten especially were and i wonder if it would be like that for every team or, or most teams but um yeah the draft is hard it's a, that's that was kind of my takeaways it's hard to draft well and to get really impact players in a draft well let's start with this let's do i think nine and ten as a package deal because i think they're in here kind of uh for uh similar reasons in a way mm-hmm. and they were they were both guys jake who are part of the same trade for sank Granky, and that's corbin martin who was taken with uh i think it was a second round pick in 2017 and then josh rojas who was taken uh in 2017 in the 26th round i'm guessing people except for the Granky trade may have, have no clue who josh rojas even is but Let's start with talking about these two, Corbin Martin and Josh Rojas. Yeah, I think you could find a lot of names who could fill in these two spots, and maybe it's recency bias by me to have these two players in here uh, who were drafted just three years ago. But uh, Martin, for me, was a lot of – well, he was he was the best prospect the Astros traded for Granke. So that that's a lot of – even though they sold – quote-unquote low on him because he had just blown out and had Tommy John surgery. Um, they they did get, you know, they did use him to get Zach Greinke. Um, now, we'll see in a few years if that turns out to be the right move or not. But as of now, um, you know, I think you could say that, that he was a valuable draft pick. Um, and I also think he's going to be really good. That's a big part of my, my pick, too. 
Um, Rojas was more for the 26th round aspect of it. Yes. Um, you know, he was a key part of that trade. I'll, you know, not the best prospect, but but he's he's thought of pretty highly now um, by some. Kind of popped out of nowhere last year um, and hit really well. He plays all, all over the field, made the majors with the Diamondbacks late last year. Um, you know, I'm not sure if he would have been on their opening day roster or not this year, but um, more like finding that guy in the 26th round and turning him into a valuable trade chip for Zach Grinke um, is why he made the list for me. Um you know, like I agree with you. I don't think many people had heard of him before the before the uh, Grinky trade. Um, and I think a lot of people in baseball were were caught off guard by him last year. And um, you know, people were were uh, you know trying to play catch up when he he kind of broke out last year and trying to figure out who he was and if he was the real deal. I had Jake a few other contenders just going through the last twenty years of of Astros picks, guys who who would have an argument and. The first couple I had as guys who were, I think, like all second round picks, I believe. Tony Kemp, Mike fulton who they ended up trading for, Evan Gaddis. I don't know how people evaluate that trade. Gaddis obviously was a contributor for a couple of playoff teams and a World Series team. Vince Velasquez, who I guess ended up being a key part of the Ken Giles trade, which <laughs> I also have no idea how people evaluate because while Giles was decently productive in Houston, he had a bad finish and was never really trusted. And then... Bud Norris and Kike Hernandez, a, a couple of uh, six-round picks, uh, three years apart in 06 and 09. Those were honestly the only the only real names. I, I there are a few others I consider, but there were guys whose wars were like maybe like one. So I chose to left to leave them out. Yeah, well, uh, Kemp I think was a fourth or fifth round pick, but his war is is less than one. Um, Fulton Nevich, um, I think. Be- it's tough with these these trades, and I guess the Granky trade's an example where there's like more than one. There's so many players involved. So like Fultonevich helped bring back Gaddis, but so did Rio Ruiz and Andrew yes. Thurman. So like, how do you quantify who who brought back who and how much of this person you know brought back which player in the trade? Um, and he also like I don't know. I think I think you could you could view that as like the Astros selling low on him because he became an all-star. Um, you know, an all-star pitcher is more valuable than a DH in Gaddis. So um, Velasquez, I think Velasquez you could make a decent case for because like Giles, it did end terribly, but like he was a pretty good closer for, for a while there. Yep. Um, Bud Norris was probably, I was probably the closest to putting him on here just because like, Getting a, okay. getting a like a starter in the sixth round is pretty good. Um, Kike Hernandez, I probably I considered him, but I probably should have considered him more. Um, another example where it's like hard because there's like so many players in that in that Marlins Astros 2014 trade. <laughs> yeah, you know it's hard to really quantify like how much value he brought back to the Astros. Um, but they did get Jake Marisnik in that trade, who was a 10 win player for the Astros in over six years. Uh, and Colin Moran, who became part of the Cole package and that draft pick that became Daz Cameron, who was part of the Verlander package. So I think you could probably make a, a case, a strong case that Hernandez should be over Martin or Rojas. Uh, but at the same time of that trade, like I think it was more the Jared Cozart deal than the Kike Hernandez deal. I agree. Uh, um, so it's tough. And then another couple guys I considered were, Miles Straw, just because the 12th round pick to get, you know, potential 
Um, well, I think he's a major league outfielder. So to get a, a major league outfielder, even if he's a bench player in the 12th round is pretty good. And then um, Abraham Toro, I also considered briefly just cause he's, you know, fifth round pick and, you know, there's a chance he's a, an everyday third baseman. I, I would probably lean toward more, you know, role player, but it's not out of the realm of possibility that he's a, an everyday third baseman and, and third round or uh, fifth round is, is would be, that'd be quite a steal. Okay, so now we're now we're at number eight in Astros ten best draft picks of the twenty first century, and you had uh, Josh James, and, and this makes a lot of sense. I mean, this was this was the thirty fourth round, and you know we'll see what Josh James turns into, but I think we both believe that had the season start on time, I mean, he certainly would have been a part of the starting rotation, and that's a guy like for me, trust factor was kind of like up and down in 2019 but like this is a guy who obviously has a pretty high upside and and getting him that late that's a really good pick yeah i mean you're not supposed to get big leaguers that late in 34th round um let alone big league starters if he is a big league starter so um the the uh, i'm projecting a little bit with that pick but even if he's a reliever i think he'd probably be eighth on that list just because you know, 34th round is, you know, like we see at the end of these 40 round drafts and maybe the 40 round drafts are, are a thing of the past now. I hope not, but, but they might be, um, you you see at the end of these drafts all the time, like teams picking like relatives of, of broadcasters <laughs> yeah. and former players and, and front office people. And, um, it's a bunch of favorites. And the Astros do that too every year. And in, in this case, they, they, you know, maybe that's a little bit later than the 34th, but it just shows you how teams kind of just like treat the end of the draft. And, and they got this legit guy, um, you know, kind of out of nowhere a couple of years ago, he, he broke out um, in the 34th round. I believe his bonus was like 15,000. Um, so, yeah, I think if he pans out into a legit starter, he's going to climb this list to probably be sixth on it. Number seven, Jason Castro, a guy who was the number 10 overall pick in 2008. Uh, really good defensively. Seemed like people liked him. He was obviously with the franchise for uh, quite a while. I always kind of felt, uh, Jake, like, I don't know, could there have been more of that 2013 season in him? People always seem to be a little bit underwhelmed because he couldn't produce like he did that year offensively. But considering how hard it is to draft in baseball, Getting a guy like Jason Castro, number 10 overall, not bad. Yeah, it's hard to find. I mean, as Astros fans know, for sure, it's hard to find good catchers in the draft and develop yes. them. And, you know, I think every year fans ask me, like, how come they can't draft catchers? How come they they never have a good catcher coming up? It's like you could, like, substitute the word Astros in for every other team almost. And, like, every team struggles to, to develop a good catcher. It's, it's just hard for for players to stay at that position if they're really good they're probably getting moved off to shortstop or, or another position like Alex Bregman for example was a was a catcher at one point and um, moved off to shortstop for longevity reasons uh, when he was younger so like it's just hard to find and, and develop those guys and yeah Castro is not like an uh he wasn't an amazing catcher but he he had one amazing season and four decent seasons and um so for that, I think, you know, he gets the nod there um, as the seventh. You could argue he's the sixth over over the next pick, which was Lance McCullers Jr. Um, 
But in McCullers case at six, I gave him the nod over Castro, even though Castro has a higher war because of he's got at least one more season with the Astros. Um, you know, he'll have whatever, uh, whatever this 2020 season turns out to be plus 2021. And also the, the 2017 ALCS performance. Yes. The significance in franchise history. I gave him uh, some bonus points for that too. I, I would 100% agree with that. Yeah. I think just given that Lance was on teams that were way more successful, I think he's got to be uh, above Castro on the list. Even if the, even if the war has a differential considering that Lance has time left in his service time. And this is, Part of, obviously, the way they executed this one back in 2012 was drafting Correa, number one, saving the money for McCullers, and having those guys be pretty big contributors the next couple of years. I think that's basically... like. The one thing I'm sure Jeff Luna would have wanted, Jake, is, is obviously for those guys to stay a little bit healthier the last couple of years, but you can't really... I mean, that's something that, that's hard to draft. Like, it, it's hard enough to get these guys to be good, and these guys have both exhibited really good talent. Uh, and so that those selections in combination, Correa and McCullers, certainly panned out the way the Astros wanted those selections to pan out. Yeah, for Correa, especially when you compare him to the alternatives, like the Astros were considering a lot of players with that 1-1. And say they had taken Byron Buxton, who's turned out to be a good player. It took a while, but he's he's, he's a good player now. And um, Mark Appel, you know, imagine if they had taken him there. Um, Yes, disaster. um, Yeah, and he was going to be more expensive, so they wouldn't have had the money for McCullers. Yeah. you know, Correa being willing to take the 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 lower bonus was why was a big reason he got he was the pick. And um, you know, McCullers, I think his his wars in the sixes, which is lower than you would think for a guy who's like been around for a while and made an all star team. But um, I think it doesn't really tell the full story of his Astros career if you just look at the war number. Number five is the 64th overall pick in 2,400 pence, who was selected by Jerry Hunsaker. So he had a 16.2 war in his time uh, with the Astros. I'm in agreement with with this because to get a guy like Hunter Pence, who was an all-star at 64, is a tremendous pick. You can argue for him being a spot or two higher. And I think, Jake, you made a really good point, which was a deal that I actually liked at the time the Pence for Singleton and Kozar deal that the Astros made back in 2011. I was in Houston at the time. I like that deal because they, they had to move off Pence given where they were as a franchise. It was unfortunate that none of those two guys worked out. They obviously, as we discussed about 10 minutes ago, they were able to spin Kozar into that, into that Marlins deal, which ended up in success for a number of different standpoints. But Pence, terrific draft pick. Yeah, and he was their top pick that year because they didn't have a first rounder uh, because they had signed Andy Pettit. Um, yeah, I mean, a really, really great pick. Um, yeah, it, there's not much. To, it, it, you could argue that this is like the lock of all locks having him at fifth because there's just no case for him dropping or or really going higher um, once we unveil the, the top four. Um yeah, it's, the, the trade obviously turns out to be really bad because Singleton was a, a huge bust. Cozart trading for a pitcher who was in high A at the time, I think, or he was he was pretty far away from the majors. Yeah, he was. Um, that's always there's always gonna be risk there. So, um, 
they had to get rid of they had to trade Pence at some point because they weren't winning. Uh, so yeah, it made sense at the time. Obviously, that's why these guys are prospects, though, when they the singletons of the world because they they bust a, a good amount of the time. So uh, it's a good thing to keep in mind when you're thinking about future trades and and you know trading established players for prospects. All right, I'm going to go with the next two uh, kind of in combination. So number four is Dallas Keuchel, who was famously the 221st pick overall in 2009 out of the University of Arkansas, and then Carlos Correa, who was drafted much higher, first overall uh, in 2012. Jake, I know you considered making Keuchel the top guy on this list, and from a value standpoint, that would be his best argument because to get a guy who ended up winning a Cy Young, became an all-star a couple of times, was a legit front-of-the-line starting pitcher for a team that was very, very good, is just insane value uh, considering where he was selected. I I, I will say this with Keuchel. Uh, (laughs) I'm not saying I'm some, like, baseball scout by any means. I actually kind of liked him, Jake, early in his Houston tenure uh, because I I was... Listen, I I would not have predicted that he would have been a Cy Young winner. Absolutely no chance. But when I saw him early on uh, with like the oversized uniform and everything, I felt like this, this, this lefty's got something. Like, I don't know what exactly it is, but I feel like this guy's got something. Yeah. I, when I started this list, he was number one uh, in my first like draft of it. I just in like, this is before I really delved into the numbers, but like, yeah, to get a Cy Young winner and uh, like, an anchor of your of your pitching staff in the seventh round uh, is pretty amazing. Um, so yeah, I, I eventually I settled on him fourth. I kind of felt like he was either one or four because depending on how you look at it, um, you couldn't really have him. You know, if you're going to have him one um, over over the three first round cornerstones, um, if you dropped, you couldn't really drop him to two or three because the the logic for having him one uh, or having him four um, just didn't really make sense uh, over you know Correa who has a higher WAR or Springer who has a higher WAR. So um, yeah, I, I think he's one of the best Astros draft picks ever because of what yep. he accomplished. But um, for the purposes of this list, I dropped him to four because. Um, you know, the other three guys are just so good. It's interesting, though, looking back at Keuchel's draft, the only pitcher better than him in terms of war is Steven Strasburg, who was like the ultimate no-brainer top pick that year. So um, yes. to get the second-best pitcher in the draft in the seventh round <laughs> is is pretty astounding. No doubt about it. Number three, Carlos Correa. Uh, we discussed it a few minutes ago, just how fortunate the Astros were that they executed that deal the way they did with Correa and saving the money from McCullers because if they hadn't, it would have been Byron Buxton or Mark Appel. Personally, you know, when I was on the radio, I've told you this, Jake, before, I would have, if it was me making that pick, I would have taken Buxton. Obviously, I'd, I'd never watched these guys play. The only thing I'd known was their names and their scouting reports. My thought was like, all right, really talented high school outfielder from Georgia. That's the kind of guy that I like the way that I think about sports. Correa, before that pick, like we had not really talked much about Correa. Obviously, the Astros had internally to a much bigger degree, but I just remember locally in Houston in the media, Correa up until like the very day of the draft, maybe even when they just made the pick, was not really being discussed much as being in real contention for that number one pick in 2012. 
Yeah, and I think if the Astros hadn't taken him, there was talk he might fall to seven, which would have given him a lower bonus anyway. So the Astros really had a lot of leverage there in the negotiation. Um, yeah. 24.5 war in five seasons, despite all the missed time. Um, and for reference, Keuchel is at 19.8. So I, I had to follow up on my incoherent uh, attempt at making uh, a point earlier. I <laughs> that was I mean, you couldn't really justify 19.8 over 24.5. Um, I guess you could justify it, but I didn't I didn't uh, go that way, um, especially because Correa has um, he's through 2021. So there's a lot of potential value there. Um you know, if the Astros re-signed Keiko a few years ago, he's probably number one on this list or number or number two maybe. But um, the future value plays into each of these these next three: Correa, Springer, and our number one on this list, Alex Bregman. Um, so yeah, I think to get even though Correa has missed a lot of time and um, you know has obviously been the the subject of frustration for Astros fans. Um, in the last three years, I mean, he's still the best player in that draft class. And, no doubt. And, you know, he racks up war pretty quickly when he's playing because he's really good offensively and defensively. Number two is George Springer, the 11th overall pick in uh, 2011. This was the last draft that the former GM, uh, Ed Wade, ran. And for my money, Jake, this was the, the pick. It's kind of a delayed onset effect here because when you're drafting players, no matter if they're in college in this case or in high school, it's going to take them usually a couple of years to get to the big leagues, three years for George Springer. But this was the thing that I think like kind of changed the, the cult. I don't know, maybe... I don't know if changing the culture is the right phrase, but it kind of changed sort of the trajectory that the team was on because it was a successful pick. I think I think Springer's been the heart and soul, like the key guy in the clubhouse during this whole run. And that was a great last first round pick by Ed Wade, George Springer at 11 in 2011. Yeah, um, 25.4 war. Uh, yeah, you can't really argue with that pick. And it was a loaded draft. I mean, that's going to go down. It was an all-time draft. You know, Garrett Cole, Trevor Bauer in the top three, Brendon, Lindor, Baez, all in the top ten before Springer. Uh, Jose Fernandez went after Springer, a couple picks after him. So an all-time draft yep. there. And uh, there were some busts mixed in there. So for the Astros to, to get a player of Springer's caliber in there. Um if Bregman hadn't signed his deal and Springer had, you know, if, if we could guarantee that Springer was going to play this year, you know, if there was going to be a season this year, he might be number one. But I think in Bregman's case, having signed his deal um, gave him the edge over Springer because Springer at 11 is, you know, more it's more an impressive pick, quote unquote, to get a, a player of that caliber at 11 than it is at two second overall. So, um yeah, I th- makes sense. I think I, I, Ed Wade probably doesn't get enough credit for that pick. Ed Wade and Bobby Heck. Um, I agree. Yeah, I mean, it, it's obviously struck out a ton um, in college and in the minors. And, and you could really say, like, he's better development story than anything else, Springer. Um, but, yeah, I, you know, I think that one was pretty easy. Once once I fell into place with the Keuchel, um and Correa at 4-3 and like having Bregman 1, it was pretty easy to slot Springer into 2 on this list. 
So with Bregman being at number one, you mentioned the contract. Was that for you basically the, the, the tiebreaker? I mean, I think if you're asking me who, who's a better player, I think Bregman is a is a better player than Springer, not by a ton, but but I guess by some, but I guess maybe by a decent margin. I mean, Springer, to be fair, has never really been in consideration for MVP as Bregman legitimately was in 2019. So I think Bregman's a better player. Uh does he play a more significant position? Uh, I, I, I probably, especially with the way that they use the shift. So that's my analysis of them, them as players. I think Bregman's a little bit better. Then you differentiate the value between taking a guy number two overall versus number 11. Was the contract sort of the tipping point to make Bregman number one on this list? Yeah, because of the future value. Um, if you think about it, he's been worth 22 wins already. He's his contract runs through the 2024 season. So like he might finish top five in franchise history by the end of that contract in war. If, yeah. if he stays on this current track, uh, Springer's not guaranteed anything beyond 2020. So um, with the Astros and yeah, I think Bregman is the best player on the Astros right now. Um, obviously like they're supposed to get a really good player with the second overall pick, but He's been the best player in that class, far better than Dansby Swanson and Brendan Rodgers. And, um, yeah, I, I think positionally, like, Springer, center fielder Springer is, is is like, the center field component of it gives him some points. But he's played right field more than he's played center as an Astro, believe it or not. So, um, you know, that, that part of it you have to factor in, too. Center field's more valuable than right field. Shortstop's more valuable in third base, but Bregman has played some some a decent amount of shortstop too. You know, having him to fill in there when Correa's been out all those times is valuable. So, yeah, I went Bregman number one. Um, you know, a few years from now we might look back and tweak this list based off of who resigns and who doesn't. Say, for example, Correa resigns. I don't. You know, I, I don't know how he wouldn't move up because he he's going to rack up war if yeah. if that happens um maybe they trade for hunter pence maybe maybe they trade for dallas keigel so who knows uh what this list is going to be mccullers could move up obviously so no doubt um, you know and someone else you know it's interesting i i toyed with forrest whitley at lower in the list because getting a top pitching prospect you know uh, any by any means like even if you got him with the first overall pick has a lot of value um but so, Jake, are, are you saying that because they got Whitley where they did in the middle of the first round, just by the virtue of the fact that he was ranked so highly on these prospect lists that it provided value to the franchise in trades that they were pursuing over the last couple of years? Right. You could argue that even if they had taken him first overall, like having the value of a uh, top 50 industry prospect or in his case at points, a top 10 industry prospect has a lot of value. So you could have argued that he should have been 10th or 9th. They they don't have a ton of other guys who fit into that category of like current prospects that you could argue should be on this list, in my opinion, uh, that were drafted by them. But, you know, considering the value of prospects also factored into the thinking here. I mean, Kyle Tucker, they got him fifth overall. He's not a prospect anymore because he exhausted his rookie status. But a year ago, two years ago, you know, just because he's a top prospect, you you could argue that he's probably ninth or tenth on this list. 
Yeah, and that's the guy that even if he becomes just a quote unquote solid major league player, could you know sneak onto this list even though he was the fifth overall pick. Because as we've been dis- discussing for about thirty minutes or so, like it is damn hard to draft quality major league players. So I want to wrap up this part of the conversation, Jake. By I have a theory, and I want to get your take on it. I think nationally, when it comes to the punishment on the, on the sign stealing scandal, I think. Two things that people vastly underrate. One, now, I understand the punishment did not mean that Jeff... It's not like Rob Manfred fired Jeff Luno. But I think Jeff Luno is one of the best... First of all, I think Jeff Luno has a claim to be maybe the best general manager in the history of Houston sports. I don't know if that's saying much or not, <laughs> but I think I, I think he, I think he has that Bill claim. O, and Bill other O'Brien's guys, on line one right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Bill's like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> but so I think, I think Jeff has that claim. And like, there's a chance that the punishments getting rid of Luno might ruin the franchise for a long time. I, I don't know that'll happen, but there's there's at least a chance of it. We don't know how good or not James Click is going to be. He seems like a, a bright guy and he seems like a very good hire just to me, but who the heck knows? But the main part that I want to mention to you, my theory is like losing these, losing the first and second round picks in 2020, even with how weird the draft is going to be. And I know they have one pick from Garrett Cole going to the Yankees, but not having a first or a second round pick the next two years is a big deal. When you go back through 20 years of drafts, as you did in a lot of detail, as I did for a couple hours this weekend, it is hard to find good major league players, period. It is especially hard to find contributing major league players after the second round of the draft. That part of the punishment, I do think, is a big deal moving forward. It is. At the same time, you know, they were drafting at the bottom of the round in both in, in the first and second round. They were. Um, so that makes it harder, too, that, that the fact that they've these years, these last three, four years, they've had lower picks um, to, to, to draft with because of their success. I, I mean, I think it's a it's there's a reason it's part of the punishment is because it is it is impactful. Um, you know, I will, it'll remain to be seen you know, the impact of firing Jeff Luno long-term, you know, the punishment didn't fire Jeff Luno, like you alluded to, Jim Crane did, in in some ways circumventing that punishment by, you know, the suspension of Luno by firing him, you know, and just being able to start over with James Click. Um, yep. So, yeah, we'll see. I mean, I think a lot of what the Astros do in the draft is model-based, and they still have those same that same model and those same people who were involved in the draft. Jeff Luna wasn't really running the draft. So I don't think the draft's going to look a ton different this year. Um, but it's, it, it'll be, it'll, well, we don't really know the impact of losing those, those picks until years down the road. Um, you know, it's possible they might've, you know, messed up those picks. So it's just, it's just, uh, again, like years from now, it'll be easier to dissect the, the value of that. I think the as big a deal in losing the actual picks is losing the slot money attached to those picks uh, gives them a lot less wiggle room to work with and maybe finding like a, a Lance McCullers type later in the draft yes. who's going to go to college if he doesn't get a huge bonus above slot. Um, those are the type of deals they won't be able to do as easily with, with not having the bonus pool money that's attached to the first and second round picks that they lost. If you haven't read the story already, um, go read it on The Athletic from late last week. Uh, if you're not a subscriber, now is a 
good time to subscribe. Um, there's a lot, even though there's been no sports, live sports, uh, there's been a ton of amazing content and stories and podcasts at The Athletic. A lot of, uh, as we were talking about earlier in the podcast, a lot of, uh, you know, stories about Michael Jordan uh, in relation to the new documentary. Uh, you can sign up now, and if you go to theathletic.com slash Crawford Talks, you can receive 40% off an annual subscription. Uh, that's theathletic.com slash Crawford Talks, the name of our podcast without the the, uh, and that's 40% off an annual subscription. We hope to see you there. Um, and that story was titled, that the story we've just been talking about, uh, it's titled... The Astros' 10 best draft picks of the 21st century. I want to finish up with uh, this, and you guys can give us feedback. Let us know what you think of uh, the ranking of the Astros' top 10 draft picks of the 21st century uh, at Jake M. Kaplan, at Mike Meltzer on Twitter. So one thing that's been bothering me, here's my take. So there is a, I'm not going to even say what paper he works for, but a a paper on the West Coast, people have an issue with, I guess, one guy. I'll admit, Jake, I I did this thing where I haven't even read the article. I just saw like the headline. So I'm going to give you a quick take on that. But basically, you got to read the article. It's it's horrible. But basically, I I guess the the guy's argument, which will not be the main thrust of what I'm I'm about to rant on, but I guess is that people need to like dress up when they're working from home, which I don't necessarily, I don't, people can do whatever they want. You can do whatever you want in in your house. Like do it as you please. Maybe if you're on video, you want to dress up more. I think that makes logical sense. I am surprised, Jake, at the number of friends of mine who are saying and tweeting things like, man, I have not put on a pair of jeans in the last week. I feel like jeans are a very comfortable thing to wear around the house. Now, I'll admit, this is what I do for work Monday through Friday. Usually, like, doing this podcast, we do it, like, first thing in the morning. And so I may not be fully dressed uh, when I'm doing this podcast with you. I know, probably too much information. But I I am dressed, but just maybe not, like, what I am at, like, at noon when we're recording. But anyway... Every single day, I am wearing jeans. I might dress up a little bit more, like put on a collared shirt or sometimes even a dress shirt to make me feel like I'm getting getting some use out of my dress shirts in this weird time period. But the point is this. I, I don't feel like jeans are uncomfortable. I feel like they are a critical part of a wardrobe. And when I, put, when I wear my jeans, I feel like, okay, I am at ease, I am comfortable, and I am in a somewhat professional environment. Your take? My take is I haven't worn jeans in at least a month. And I do not miss. God. I do not miss wearing <laughs> jeans. I've been wearing sweatpants and shorts, like gym shorts, pretty much all the time. And it's much more comfortable than jeans. So I I don't like disagree that jeans aren't like. It's not like you're wearing dress dress pants and it's like. A, a, no, that a I would sure, but like, <laughs> I don't know. I just haven't felt compelled to wear jeans. Um, you know, I also like don't go out at all so which is what you're supposed to do right now by the way but um i don't i, I don't know i don't miss wearing jeans either i um it's been- so I, i'm a jeans guy like that that is my usual wardrobe now like my my day job is usually one where i will monday through, thir- through thursday like usually put on dress pants so i don't 100 percent have to and then fridays i'll go with jeans but for me je- like i am most comfortable in a t-shirt or a polo and jeans i i am actually more comfortable in jeans than i am in sweatpants and athletic shorts like i i would be not that comfortable maybe i'm doing life wrong or something but i would be well, less comfortable wearing like 
Well, not no, not You're at all. A big but like, shot lawyer, I feel, and I'm the schlubby sports writer over here, so I disagree. <laughs> I, I I don't feel comfortable like when I'm working in athletic shorts. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's a mental thing. I am like I am just a jeans guy. Well, I'm happy for you. I really am. <laughs> um, I I don't really have uh, a disagreement. I'm just. Um, it's like I said, like I I do wear jeans to work most days when I'm working, but, um, you know, like working outside, I haven't, I've been working inside. Uh, so I haven't had to wear jeans and I'm not going to wear them unless I have to. Uh, I just like, I don't have to shave right now, which has been kind of interesting. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I don't think that your take is wrong, but I don't, you know, I choose to live my quarantine life a little differently. That makes sense. Well, he is Jay Kaplan. I'm Mike Meltzer. So do us a favor. Give us the feedback on the Astros 10 best draft picks and also mine versus Jake's take on jeans as well. So we're back on Thursday for the second episode of the Crawford Talks. We're on with we're with you uh, twice a week. Do us a favor and rate and review the podcast as well. If you have a moment, which we all have a little bit of time over the course of uh, this time during the pandemic. This is the Crawford Talks, an Astros podcast brought to you by The Athletic.